0: Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is
1: Mornings with Zerlina.
0: Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us today is Nick Ackerman, former Watergate special prosecutor. We're going to break down Jan 6 because we just saw woo, testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. Okay, Nick. So my first question um, was this, is essentially, is Cassidy Hutchinson, is she John Dean or is she Alexander Butterfield?
1: Uh, I think she's a little bit of both. Um, First of all, she's the John Dean in the sense that she's really given us the outline of the criminal conspiracy and what happened and put the knowledge right in Trump's uh, head that he knew about the violence beforehand, that the violence was clearly a means to stop the count of the Electoral College vote. Um, And she was kind of the Alex Butterfield, too, in the sense that you know, she was an insider that came in and said, you know, this is what I saw and what happened, and basically revealed uh, what Trump was doing on January 6th and before, and and what other people were doing and saying about January 6th with respect to the violence. So, in a way, she was a bit of both. Um, I mean, it, and she's Go ahead. Yeah.
0: No, no, I was just saying when you think, when you put it that way, um, it, it's so fascinating to think about the historical parallels. And again, I, I sort of liken what we heard yesterday to like Donald Trump trying to drive himself to the bank, like to rob it, right? But then ultimately, somebody in the form of a Secret Service agent blocking him from that um, ability to do that. <laughs> um, right. And and I and I wonder which pieces of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony um including the sort of trying to take the steering wheel in the suv from the secret service agent to drive himself to the insurrection um which pieces of her testimony stand out in your mind as basically knocking down any defense um donald trump and his allies had to this idea that like they couldn't have known about the violence they didn't intend for the they had nothing to do with the violence it was just That happened spontaneously, randomly, and we had no awareness or involvement. The intent question.
1: Well, I I think that the obvious was that uh, Trump knew that people were there with uh, weapons. They had AR-15s. They had uh, Glocks, uh, guns, all kinds of guns. And he wanted those people into the ellipse in front of him for his speech. So, I mean, he had knowledge of what was going on. It's not like this was some kind of a spontaneous reaction. Um, And and we know from other evidence, it wasn't that the Proud Boys were up there before Trump was even starting to speak uh, to go into the Capitol and and sort of make the incursion so that other people could get in and they could cause all the mayhem uh, that hopefully they thought would stop the electoral vote count. I mean, don't forget that at least two days before January 6th, uh, Donald Trump knew for a fact that Vice President Pence was not going to um, uh, you know, stop the vote. He was not going to send the vote back to the states, the battleground states. He was not going to reject Electoral College votes. So the only way they had to stop this and try and get the um, Electoral College votes back to the states was basically through violence. And that was always my working hypothesis here. Uh, And Cassidy Hutchinson basically spelled it out yesterday. I mean, you know, you you can't, you can take parts of her testimony, some which would be admissible in a court of law, some of which might not, but essentially now the Department of Justice has a roadmap uh, to go after other people, put them in a grand jury and put this case together. I mean, it's really kind of a dramatic step that uh, we just didn't have before. We did not have the insider uh, who spelled out exactly what Trump knew and when he knew it.
0: Yeah. I mean, in, in terms of just, I mean, it is the fly on the wall. I mean, or ketchup on the wall next to the fly, I guess, but, um, <laughs> but, but you, you essentially have somebody who's always in the room. Um, she's always in the room with the principals. Um, because she's working for the president's chief of staff. She's working her offices right off of the chief of staff's office, which is right off of the president's uh, in the Oval. Um, and so you get the sense that she's just always there. In terms of some of the other people that were in the room, though, there was a lot of references, and they're doing this more and more, name-checking people who have not cooperated with the committee yet or who have not shown up to testify um, in these hearings under oath, have not agreed to do that who were also in the room for these conversations. So that's Pat Cipollone, that's Mark Meadows. Um, it, should they be nervous
1: about um, well, they sh- I mean, I think Pat Cipollone for sure should be testifying. I mean, I didn't hear anything that necessarily put any criminal liability on him, but it certainly seemed uh, that he could spell out some of these details even more. I mean, he was present Uh, when there was the discussion about the DOJ and whether or not uh, there would be a replacement there. He was present for discussions on January 6th um, and probably a lot of other discussions. So he's somebody that could really go through this chronologically and kind of give a lot more factual information. Now, if he's subpoenaed before a grand jury, he's not going to have any choice. He's got no privilege. He's got no executive privilege. He's got no attorney-client privilege. He's a lawyer for the office of president, not personal lawyer to Donald Trump. Uh, certainly, a, a, um, a executive privilege does not apply uh, to criminal matters. The Supreme Court pretty much settled that in the U.S. v. Nixon case. So, um, you know, he is somebody that... Um, basically is out there now, um, that at least in the criminal matter, uh, will be called to testify. And I don't quite understand why the committee doesn't just subpoena him and, you know, put him in the hot seat and start asking him questions. I I think uh, this might be a, a spot to go a little bit off script and just bring him in and question him in front of the public. Um, At this
0: point, I think that that's right. I mean, I mean they're, they're willing to go off script. In a lot of ways, when you describe um, that, that there's no attorney-client privilege, I feel like I'm, I probably learned that in law school, but I actually know that from the West Wing <laughs> um, because that's the scene where Oliver Babish breaks the dictaphone – like the the tape recorder, because the president is telling him, like, I'm about to tell you about this conspiracy about how I had a, I have a mess and I've defrauded the American voter or whatever, and he breaks the tape recorder um, because he's basically like, I'm not your lawyer. I don't we don't have that uh, attorney client privilege thing. I represent the pre- the office of the presidency, and he's explaining what you just said. Um, but it's a really really funny scene. So <laughs> that was what immediately what I thought of. Um, the other thing. Um, that um, I keep going back to is sort of the timeline of things. So if Donald Trump is told on January the 2nd, and Mark Meadows is told on January the 2nd, um, based on Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony, that they are expecting violence, Mark Meadows is quoted as saying it's going to be really, really bad. Rudy Giuliani is leaving the West Wing saying, you know, it's going to be great. We're going to go to the Capitol. Aren't you excited? Um, is Does that bolster... The point you were making that they knew well in advance that there was going to be violence. It's not just that they were told the morning of the 6th, but they were told days leading into the 6th, even before anybody showed up with a weapon, that there was a potential for violence. It pretty much
1: is is consistent in the timeline in the sense that they knew at that time that Mike Pence was not going to do what they wanted him to do, or that there was at least a good chance he was not going to do what they wanted him to do. So, Plan B was the violence, mm. uh, and that was the only way that they could stop it. I mean, the whole idea of this was to send in a group like the Proud Boys um, or the Oath Keepers, uh, essentially, to break through into the Capitol. Uh, all the other people were kind of just, uh, you know, there as cannon fodder to, you know, create the mayhem and 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 really put the Capitol in a position where it had to close down. If they could have kept the electoral college vote from being counted that day um, and created enough mayhem to put that over so that they could then come up with another plan to go to the state legislatures, that's what they were looking to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why the violence was a key piece of this conspiracy. And and you mentioned before Mark Meadows, I mean, he is another key person in this Uh, obviously if he's called before either a committee or the grand jury he's going to assert his fifth amendment privilege Um, but you know either the committee or the department of justice can grant him use immunity uh, Mm. and force him to testify and so now that he knows we know what the truth is um through cassidy hutchinson um he can't go in there and lie very easily because he knows he's subject to perjury if he should lie so he's the one that probably can lay out the most detailed information on Donald Trump, simply because he was talking to him all the time about this. So that's one of the big issues. And, and one little teaser that came out yesterday was the fact that he had, been call, he had called um, Roger Stone, mm-hmm. uh, who is a key figure in all of this. Now, Cassidy Hutchinson didn't know what the subject of that call was, or at least if she did, it didn't come out yesterday. Um, but he's someone who's absolutely critical to this. He was with the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers on January fifth. Uh, he was obviously in the war room uh, at the Willard Hotel, and he is the person that created this whole, um, you know, thing about the, the stealing the 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 vote. I mean, this whole program about um, the, the vote being stolen started back in the Republican. Um, primaries in 2016. This is the mm-hmm. guy who created it, this nonsense about, you know, trying to use that as a, a political weapon to put questions or, or question the vote, the validity of the vote in the first place. So he's somebody that um, I think the committee is going to want to, um, uh, you know, push further, or at least certainly the Department of Justice finding more What more evidence there is of his involvement and his being the bridge between Donald Trump and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers.
0: So that was actually my next question was about the Willard Hotel war room, because I feel like this is I mean, not just new information, but also in the context of the story that they're telling. And if the next hearing is like, okay, we're going to take you inside the war room, (laughs) um, then I feel like they've laid out the case here. But set that up for us, because what we learned yesterday through her testimony is that, as you said, on January the 5th, there were calls and meetings between Trump, Roger Stone, Trump and Michael Flynn, who took the Fifth Amendment, by the way, in his testimony, they played that. Um, He took the fifth on the question of, do you believe in the peaceful transfer of power? Like, that's wild. But, um, (laughs) But in terms of the Willard Hotel, is that sort of the ground zero for the conspiracy in terms of the violence? Um, um, you it, know, it's is part that how, of it for how sure. you link it back to Trump? Yeah,
1: I mean, look, look. a conspiracy is simply an agreement to commit a crime. And it's obviously that that agreement went back and forth between the Oval Office and others that were out there. Um, and certainly the Willard Hotel was a central part of this entire operation. Uh, what was going on there? I mean, the question is, you know, do they have somebody who is an insider at the Willard Hotel? Mm. I mean, you would think there would be some staff people there. I mean, um, you know, is there a Cassidy Hutchinson who was, you know, in the Willard Hotel that would cooperate or is somebody, at least the Department of Justice could um, approach and if need be, um, give immunity to. So you're right, I mean, it would be wonderful if somehow you had a complete tape recording of everything that went on at the Willard Hotel or somebody who could describe what went on at the Willard Hotel. Uh, but you, it's absolutely correct. That was kind of a focal point. No no question about it.
0: So it, it it feels to me like the other piece that they're trying to set up is the fact that, you know, as we saw in the Mueller probe, um, there's witness intimidation happening in real time. Um, that was at the very end of the hearing. I mean, Liz Cheney is very good at this. She's very good at sort of the dramatic tease. I'm, I'm very impressed by that. Um, yes but uh but i think that the end so showing messages obviously anonymous messages of people who've received messages like you know basically saying like donald trump is watching make sure you like stay on team trump for the, your testimony you know that that is witness tampering right like, straight oh straight no out. question
1: about it it's, it's it's 20 20 year federal felony it's extremely serious uh and it It seems to me that the reason that they brought Cassidy Hutchinson in yesterday as opposed to waiting till July is probably because she was one of the uh, Mm -hmm. targets of that witness tampering that Mm -hmm. they felt that her testimony was so important uh, that they were concerned that somebody might ultimately reach her and in order to avoid that, uh, they had her testify yesterday. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if one of those two messages was, you know, related to her as opposed to other people.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh, so, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. Thank yeah. You. I mean, that's that's how I read the whole thing, which came right at the end of the testimony. So to me, that was a message uh, to the, the Trump people saying, look, we know you, what you're doing. Um, we're watching you carefully. And this is serious. And you guys are going to wind up in jail as a result of just this alone so um that's where that's how i read the whole thing that 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 was a a a very stark warning to the trump people that they had better lay off or they're going to be in huge trouble if they're not already
0: i mean it's so crazy to think about the mob tactics basically employed here i mean some of this stuff just sounds like it's out of the sopranos um the other question i had was about pardons because in the last hearing we obviously got the pardon list of the congress people who had sought pardons, but yesterday we also learned that Rudy Giuliani and Mark Meadows asked or at least inquired at some point about pardons. I mean, talk about
1: that. Yeah, look, you don't, you don't, you don't, <laughs> the chief of ask staff
0: for... asked for a pardon. <laughs> the chief of you staff, you don't ask
1: for a pardon unless you're concerned that you've got some criminal liability. Neither of these people had been charged with a crime yet, but they knew. Uh, the fact that they asked for a pardon is, is consciousness of guilt that they knew that they had done something wrong. And you would not ask for a pardon unless you had, you believed that what you were doing was not legal. So I just, uh, this is uh, breathtaking testimony. I mean, Rudy Giuliani is somebody I've known for years. Um, he was somebody who interviewed me before I went to the US Attorney's Office uh, you know, many many years ago, he wound up being a defense lawyer against me in a case, uh, and then I overlapped with him a little bit while he was U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Um, and the idea that this is someone who would have to ask for a pardon um, is absolutely breathtaking.
0: I mean, I, when you just say it like that, I mean, like we're t- we're talking about the chief of staff of the to the president. And the president's lawyer, you know, somebody who, as you said, used to be U.S. attorney, uh, U.S. attorney in the Southern District and is asking for a pardon for an attack because there was an attack on the Capitol, an insurrection where people died. because that's the stakes that we're talking about here. It's like, you know, this this as, as we make these Watergate parallels and comparisons, I feel like it's always important to mention that this is so much worse. Right.
1: Oh, no question. Look at Rudy Giuliani was out there on the ellipse, telling people that this was trial by combat, Mm. when they knew that there were people out there that actually were prepared for combat that had guns, that they had real guns with real bullets. And it puts the whole all those speeches in a whole different context, right? I mean, it'd be one thing if they were speaking to a group of AARP elderly people who were there on walkers, (laughs) um, but they weren't, they were speaking to a group of people that were literally loaded for bear with guns. And when you put it in that context, it is a whole different story.
0: That is a really good way to put it. When you, it's a whole different story with some of this new information. Um, (laughs) And in a lot of ways, you know, that's how investigations unfold. You know, they they put the pieces together and sometimes there's a new picture. Um, but I think the picture we started out with was that Donald Trump certainly um, knew that there people that people were going to go to the Capitol that day. He called them there to be there. He told them to go, um, but also apparently attempted to go. So that's actually my last question. We have about four more minutes. So. There's a lot of back and forth this morning about what happened in this SUV between Donald Trump, the president of the United States, and a secret service agent who refused to take him to the to the Capitol. Um, How did you read that information? Is that just sort of like entertaining or is it also evidence of Trump's intent to go and participate in the yeah, it's,
1: Of course, it's, it's, it's evidence of his intent to participate. He wanted to be there. He actually said he was going to be there in his speech. Um, and then the Secret Service prohibited him from going there because they couldn't they guard him, they couldn't protect him. Um, and, um, you know, whether or not he actually lunged forward and grabbed that Secret Service agent uh, in the car um, is almost irrelevant to the point that what we do know is he definitely wanted to go really wanted to go, and they wouldn't let him. Um, And, um, you know, God knows what he would have done if he had gone up there. Um, And he was warned if he had gone up there that this would uh, involve him in all kinds of criminal activity and and potential liability. Um, But he still wanted to go. So, yes, it, it, it does go to his state of mind and overall intent, no question about it.
0: The other thing they keep going back to, and at this point I now have it just like on a sheet in my yellow pad. It's like text to Mark Meadows is what it says at the top, underlined. Um, But one of the things they keep doing, and I love a good timeline, is going back to the text to Mark Meadows the day of the insurrection. They use the president's tweet at 224. And then they also keep going back to the text messages. Laura Ingraham texts to Mark Meadows, 232, Don Jr., 253, Hannity, 331. Um, how how does how do the text messages to Mark Meadows and Trump's tweet fit into the conspiracy? Because I feel like Mark Meadows after yesterday, I feel like, you know, as you said, he may have criminal liability because it feels like especially because she described him sort of sitting there, not doing anything like it was a dereliction of duty of sorts. Is there any liability well, associated with his conduct on that day, given the fact that all these people are texting him to tell the president to tell the, you know, tell the protesters to go home and he's ignoring them.
1: Oh, well, sure. He was going along with the plan, the plan and the mm. violence. I mean, he wasn't going to stop the violence because that's what Trump wanted. Mm. So yes, I mean, it goes to his criminal liability and his participation in the conspiracy. Um, what's also interesting is that the Trump tweet about Mike Pence, you know, came after um, Trump was aware that uh, there were people out there asking or yelling that uh, Pence should be hung. Um, and having made all of these threats against Pence, uh, Trump sends out this this um, tweet that just added more fuel to the fire. I mean, it was like putting gasoline on a fire, basically. It, um it, it again showed what his intent was in terms of you know fomenting and maintaining that violence uh to stop the uh, Congress from moving ahead with its constitutional duty to count the electoral vote.
0: One of the things I've learned actually to that point from um Ryan Riley um and also Scott McC- Scott I can't remember his last name, but from CBS News and I'm blanking on his name at this moment, which is unfortunate. Um, but those two reporters who have been like in the courtrooms during the D- Jan 6 trials for the regular people, you know, the people that broke the windows, right. one of the things that they actually have pulled out um, as a data point is that there was an uptick in violence after the tweet. So the tweet is at 224 and the, the worst of the assault in terms of the attacks on police officers and and the violence that we saw on January 6 happened right after the tweet. And sort of they looked at um, all of the defendants' cases and sort of did that analysis. And so that stands out to me as something because, you know, the president is directing. He's he's the director here. He's not even just the reality star. He's directing the show.
1: No, Um, it's just like Chairman Thompson said at the beginning of this whole thing, that that, that Trump was the person behind it. He was the coordinator. Uh, Everything came back to him. It was all done at his direction, and and what the committee promised they would prove at the beginning of these hearings is exactly what they're proving.
0: It is what a time. It's a lot, but I, I hope that um, Nick has been helpful um, to you guys at home in in just breaking all of this down. This is this is so. Sometimes I sit down and I sit quietly, and I'm like, like yesterday, for example, I went to my refrigerator at the end of the hearing. You know, to fill up my water bottle, and I'm standing there as the thing is filling up. And I'm literally like, the president attacked a Secret Service agent to, dry, to try to drive himself to the insurrection. Like, I just said that out loud. I was like, that's what we just learned in this hearing. What it, like, it's too much to process um, in so many ways. Um, but sometimes you, it's important to say that sentence out loud. I'm sure there's a lot of prosecutors saying that sentence out loud to figure out what crimes they can charge. Nick Ackerman, Watergate Special Prosecutor, also um, from S E N Y. Thank you so much. It's been great to have you, as always. So helpful in having your analysis. Also, um, your Watergate experience, um, because that's our only historical parallel. Um, But as you said, this is way, way, way worse. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.